Well, shout in triumph, O Jerusalem. Your king comes to you, riding on a colt. Some years ago, at the request of some friends of mine, I took a course in motorcycle riding. I hadn't done this since I was a kid, 15, 16 years old, and so I did that, and soon afterwards, I joined a world that I knew almost nothing about. Did you know that there is inside of the motorcycle world uh, a fear of everybody else who doesn't ride motorcycles? So... Um, they sort of see themselves as like a tribe um, that has to look out for. They're like a minority that is oppressed by drivers of automobiles. Then I learned in this world uh, that there is a pecking order. There are those who ride Harleys and everybody else such that when you're riding down the road and you do the customary wave of the hand, which is something riders of automobiles never do, you can wave at a rider of a Harley, but if you yourself are not on a Harley, sometimes they won't wave back. Sometimes uh, the girl on the back will wave back. Uh, she's nice, but the one in front won't do that. So one day when we were blessing the bikes out here, we had almost 100, maybe 80 to 100 bikes out in the parking lot. Uh, and um, someone said to me, Steve, you need to go out and look at the parking lot. It is a sight to see. And I went out there and I was just overwhelmed there were maybe 80 to 100 motorcycles parked like stallions in stalls, one right after the other in a long column. And about two-thirds of the way through, there was a moped <laughs> with a milk carton on the back. I'm making this up. And so I came in the back, in the front door here, and there were a couple of guys, actually three guys that were standing there. And you guys, I was busting out laughing all the way back in. And when I came in the door, a couple of the guys uh, said to me, what are you laughing at? And I said, you guys are not going to believe this. There's like... 80 motorcycles out there, and then right in the middle of them is a moped. And two of the guys started laughing, but the third guy with a straight face <laughs> said, It's not a moped. I went, What is it? <laughs> he said, it's a scooter. <laughs> so I learned on that day that there is a hierarchy in two-wheeled vehicles. There are Harleys, then there's motorcycles, then there's scooters, <laughs> then there's bicycles. 
And then there's about 10 feet of crap, and then there's mopeds at the bottom. Rejoice, O Israel, your king comes to you riding on a moped. You start to get the feel of this. Now, to be fair, donkeys in those days were not what Americans make them out to be. Lots of people had donkeys, rich and poor. Even kings rode donkeys in royal campaigns. Most people entered the city gate on foot. Uh, Almost no one entered on the donkey. The rest of them entered on a horse. So we can't really dismiss this by reading kind of this Western American prejudice into donkeys because it clearly is not there. Uh, But but they were at the lower part of the vehicle line. So camels were like minivans. Okay? Horses were like Harleys. Mules were like scooters. And donkeys were like mopeds. Whoever was on one was not looking to fight. He did not come for war. Therein lies the story of Palm Sunday that many people miss. John Croston and Marcus Borg tell us that there were two processions into Jerusalem that day, not one. One of those processions would have been by Pilate himself. He lived 60 miles to the west of Jerusalem. He did not live in Jerusalem. But it was customary for Romans in those days to come into the city and to be a military presence whenever there was a festival. And this was the beginning of Passover for the Jews. The population in Israel would go from about 50,000 to 150,000. And given that this was a city that was full of political tensions and religious fervor, a little disruption could go into chaos and total violence in just minutes. And so the Roman custom was to start every festival or every week of holy days by bringing a military presence into the city, by relocating the government officials from wherever they lived onto the city grounds so they could deal with these things quickly and efficiently. So what came in through the west gate that day would have been Pilate on a horse surrounded by a garrison of soldiers, some on horseback and some on foot. They have come to reinforce the presence of soldiers that are in the city. They've come to show power. There is inside of Pilate a theology. The Romans believed that The child born an emperor, Caesar Augustus, was literally a son of God. 
on the day that he was born, there was a public announcement all throughout the Roman Empire that the Savior of the world had finally come. When Augustus died in 14 AD, the emperors that followed him took on the divine titles that he started, and they accepted the worship of Romans that came to them. And so what comes through the Western Gate that day is not only a show of Roman military power, but it is the Roman theology that the gods have located themselves inside the empire of Rome. Are you tracking What comes through the other gate, the eastern gate, uh, is uh, homeless, no place to lay his head, peasant. And he's surrounded by unemployed fishermen. And none of them are riding, only he's riding, only he's not riding a horse. The thing that you take into battle, he's riding a donkey. And if I have read the text right, three of the four gospels specifically tell us that he gave orders to his disciples before I enter the city, untie the donkey and bring him to me. And these are his words. If they ask you, why are you taking my donkey? You tell them the master needs your donkey. If you ever ask yourself, why does he need it? Is he just checking a box? to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy? Or is he making a symbol about the kind of kingdom that he's bringing to Jerusalem? Tell him your master needs a donkey. He can't walk and he won't take a horse. So as Jesus comes into the city from the Mount of Olives into the Eastern Gate, the people are ready to greet him. They're taking their coats off and putting them on the road in front of him. And they're cutting down palm branches from the trees and they're waving the palm branches. And right here is where you start to detect what's happening. Palm branches are to Jews at this time symbols of national loyalty. 200 years ago when Simon Maccabeus went into the temple and he wiped out the Romans, they waved palm branches and they threw their coats in front of Maccabeus's horse. So there's symbols of Jewish national fervor happening. And then when the people start chanting, what they want becomes clear. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
straight from Psalm 118 when guests would rise into the temple. But the next line, blessed is the king of Israel, that doesn't come from any Old Testament text. They added that. One starts to hear a nationalistic religious fervor. Here comes our king. 200 years after the last cleansing of the temple, 200 years after the last deliverer, he's back. The one that we waited for. This one walked on water. He even turned the water into wine. This one raised the dead. I like his chances. Can you start to feel the fervor that is mounting in Jerusalem on that day? One from the west gate, the other from the east gate. And maybe we should just say that what they want for Jerusalem is not always that far apart. Both of them, the west and the east, have a vision for justice. Both of them envision a city that is at peace. Both of them wield a kind of power. But the way that they get that justice and the way that they get that peace, well, they could not be more opposite. And it turns out that the Jews that are lining the streets welcoming their king are expecting him to come in and inflict his peace and his justice onto the city. They expect him to do to Pilate what Pilate had been doing to them. They want Jesus's agenda but they're going to use Pilate's methods to get them. Am I making sense? They, they, they keep seeing the king. They keep missing the donkey. This is our problem today. Never has our nation been more deeply divided. I mean, ideally, ideologically. And never have we been more closely divided. I mean, the last eight elections have been settled by less than 10 points. That's only happened four other times in the last 100 years. And it's been the last eight for us. And uh, while our elections every few years um, get closer and they get more ideologically separated, um, I hear the clamor in the streets. I, I see 
the ranting on social media. I hear the frothing of devout Christians with palm branches in their hands, hoping that King Jesus will come back and inflict justice. I I start to wonder if we don't want Jesus's agenda in Pilate's methods. I start to wonder if we should set out for a different set of assumptions and a different means of accomplishing them that lead us to a different end. You there? Can I contrast these for you? The methods from the West, Pilate's ways, is to uh, take the mind of God and encapsulate it inside of a certain kind of people. Whether they are Romans or Americans or whites or blacks or Hispanics or Asians or the poor or the rich. It is to think that God belongs to us. Our cause is just. Therefore, it neatly divides the world into good people and bad people, the right and the wrong. The second thing it almost always does is it tries to enforce its justice by laws uh, and incentives and threats from the outside. It tries to get hold of systems and maneuver systems so systems require the people living in them to act a certain way. It, It uses things like fear and anger and shame and greed and corporate pride and jealousy to stir the masses up and point them in the direction that Pilate wants them to go. And so it never liberates people. It lets the people feel like they're making their own choices, but the choices they make are all within a spectrum that Pilate has determined as structured by the rules. The third thing is, because it uses outside systems to force people to act in certain ways, it always creates other victims. And then it sacralizes these victims. As if they were sacrifices to their God collateral damage, price to pay, necessary evils. But we, it somehow sanctifies people. And so what happens is every few years, 
another Pilate comes to power and he fills positions with his corrupt heart. All that changes are the victims, not the system. From the East is an entirely different kind of justice. This man not only believes in social justice, he is justice. He is a different kind of person. He knows that God is over all, through all, and in all. And so while he belongs to all, he is owned by no one. This king knows that his thoughts are as high above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth. He knows that his ways are beyond tracing. He knows that none of us has ever known the mind of the Father that we might instruct him or tell him how he should act. Therefore, he does not divide the world into neat little categories, the right and the wrong. He lets the world divide itself. It was he who said, I do not judge you. That's not why I came. Your own words judge you. Therefore, he does not have to use external forces to change things. He comes inside the heart of a man or a woman and he gets hold of their soul and he changes the way that a person is bent. And when he changes the soul of a person, you can trust him in any system. You can't contain him with a system. He is literally not of this world. This one knows that until you change the soul of a person, you've not really changed anything for long. Therefore, he creates no victims because he needs no victims. He doesn't have to wipe people out in order to know who he is and to prove his identity. You still there? I've described for you this morning two ways. The way from the West, which is Pilate and his entourage and the way from the east which is Jesus and his disciples and I've even said that so much of us stand in the middle looking at the west as if that's where Jesus is going to come from. We do not realize 
that Jesus came from the east and he brought the kingdom with him and he brought it like yeast, not the bread pan. He does not control the shape that a people or a culture takes. He gets inside every culture and causes it to rise. He is alive and he is active. What does this mean for us? Well, a couple of things. To start with, it means we ought to be a little more humble. We ought to um, listen more than we talk. Anytime Jesus comes into the city and wipes out our temple and not their fortress, Anytime he picks a fight with religious leaders and not sinners and tax collectors, it ought to make us a little more cautious about our self-righteous judgments. Yes, anytime the victim becomes the Lord, as Jesus did, it ought to make us careful not to people, any people, because they're not like us. You know the emails I get from people telling me what they should do at the border. Please stop sending these things. You do not know what spirit you are of. You won't pilot bringing Jesus' agenda. You don't realize the way you win it is what you're stuck with in the end. Your methods are your ends. Please. A couple years ago, I had an argument with the Lord and um, over these categories that I was forming. I grew up in conservative, well, that's enough. I wrote the following prayer. Oh God, when I am most certain I am right, remind me that one may think differently and not be wrong. Teach me to listen without having to answer, to empathize without having to become, to respect without having to participate. Teach me inside my safe definitions to leave room for other possibilities to eat with those whose heart is as mine, but whose mind is of another persuasion. Help me to see that people are more than the sum of their beliefs and help me to embrace the part of them that embraces you. For you have said, I have sheep that are not of this flock. 
Show me that I am not the kingdom of God, but rather I belong to it, and what little of it I possess probably borders that which is possessed by another from a different mind. Finally, thank you for sending people, events into my life that pull up my firmly grounded corners. These show me that God is not the possession of any man, that God is more than the sum of my ideas about him, that there really is a wideness to his mercy, and that smart as I think I am, there is so much more to the infinite I cannot know unless someone from another place and another persuasion stoops to show it to me. For even when I was sure I was right, I have been wrong. Amen. The second thing that this calls for, besides a spirit of humility and empathy and patience and understanding and listening, in other words, intelligence, is it calls for action. We cannot sit in the city and cry for justice from either the West or the East unless we have our own sleeves rolled up and we are busy in some act that is directly in front of us. That's not what you believe. Jesus did not say, by this will all men know you're my disciples, that you're right. He said that you love people. Your love is the most compelling argument. Can I tell you a couple of things we're doing in our church just lately that's, I think, starting to turn our congregation and act. Can I tell you this? Then I'm going to let you go. You know we started Immigrant Connection. Josh was up here today. And there's a, a number of people that we're not able to help because we cannot help them legally. So we provide as much support as we can provide, but for those of you that are, you're, you're still sensitive about this, we're not sneaking anyone in. We're simply using channels that Pilate has created in order for us to um, bring people into the country in legal ways. Is that right? So far, I believe we have three families that are in our congregation, maybe here this morning. Uh, who's come through that, that system that we're still working with. Josh is leading Bible studies, even worship service now. That's getting so large they're having to split. I mean divide. I mean reproduce. <laughs> Isn't that great news? Now, I, I guess about two or three weeks ago, we, uh, we had a meeting with a thing called Safe Families. That was your idea. It didn't come from the staff. And about 25 people went into a room and they heard about Safe Families. 15 of you stayed for the training in a safe family. And some of you are already practicing this and you guys are like, just so you know, are like rock stars in the kingdom of God. <laughs> um, it's a place in between a child um, in the system where they can go quickly and they can find help, a shelter, a place of refuge while 
the courts and the protective services work things out. And so I'm excited about a number of people in our church that are leaning into that. We have a number of people that volunteer at Slocum. You know this. That's not new. What you didn't know is that last year Slocum had a D. This year they're getting a B. And they haven't had that in years. I do not believe that is possible except for the gospel. I believe the teachers that work there, they every Sunday are infused with hope by the gospel. Now, I know it's hard. My wife works there too. And I know the stories. I get downloads every day. <laughs> but hope is rising, man. There are people that show the love of Jesus in the middle of a day when we're all busy doing something else. And these kids' lives are being changed because of the presence of our mentors and our teachers. I got word just this last week from Alex Cecilia down in Mexico City. You're going to love this. He said, Steve, we're getting ready to plant another church. I'm like, isn't three or four enough? No, wait, it gets better. They're planning it inside of a military school. <laughs> this is such a great story. I wrote back, I said, I haven't heard a story like this since God raised Moses right under Pharaoh's nose. There's an old cathedral in a military school that's been vacant for a long time, and there's people that are coming to Christ and they need a place to meet. And so Alex's church is going to go in there and start uh, church right in Pilate's yard. Isn't that exciting? There are a movement to go over to Sierra Leone. We'll get there this year for the first time. We'll go into a listening campaign. Now, I can't report it right now. I'll tell you at the end of April some of the stuff that's happening there. But these are the kinds of things that God is doing all around the city. What I'm telling you is God is the Savior of the world. And he is able to save it from a minority position. Today as then he rides into the city on the donkey. <laughs> oh, Jerusalem, rejoice. Your king comes to you riding on the donkey. <laughs> 